Welcome to Because You Need to Know, recorded live at the Cohen Multimedia Studio at Chautauqua Institution. I'm Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Today in the studio, we have John Shettle. He has been inspired by the engagements that he has delivered in the areas of knowledge management, organizational development, and learning management systems. His specialties are in collaboration solutions, business intelligence, dashboards, learning management systems, and knowledge management. John, what's the most important thing about knowledge management people should know? You know, that, that leaves it kind of broad and, and wide open. Um, I think there's so many different interesting audiences for the area of knowledge management and how it's applied, what it's the effect, the transformative effect, if you will, that, that it has the potential for in an organization, whether that's a government organization, a not-for-profit, um, or a research university. I guess the one way to explain that would be to go back and lay out what originally intrigued me about this area, what sort of oh. opened my eyes to the to the the terminology, which then led to the understanding of what this is and what it okay. could be. So where did that spark come from? I was early on in my career, uh, I was at uh, KPMG Consulting. They had just recently divested from the broader 65 subsidiaries of KPMG all across the the globe. And they were struggling with um, what we would now in KM call sort of an expertise locator challenge. Mm -hmm. And then we later came to understand that in addition, a just-in-time learning challenge. So it was KPMG as a large global consulting organization, which was an interesting framing context, um, struggling with the idea of how to compete in a global marketplace Mm -hmm. of ideas and managing a workforce of consultants that ranged from new graduates to very senior people with unique IP, with very unique perspectives and skills. Blending that across 65 subsidiaries all across the world and competing with, you know, the other big six at the time. Okay. Um, and so what is that inventory of knowledge, expertise, and unique competitive insight that they had? This was a... What brought that organization to even understand that need? How did that even come about? Interesting question. I'm not sure. I, I didn't sit on the board of directors. So I'm not certain that I know with much fidelity what drove what triggered them, it. Other than, yeah. other than the competitive impulse of... You know, we had gone from the, the big eight consulting accountancies to the big six, to the big four, and it was clear that the consolidation of those entities, the, com- the competitive fever, if you will, was simply getting more and more, and more pitched. Mm. And the other piece was that it was very clear that we needed to be able to compete at a global scale, mm-hmm. that both because our, our expertise was distributed globally, but also because the kinds of clients that we were all competing for the really high-profile, high-value clients were doing business globally and looking for talent globally. Okay. So how does KPMG begin to represent that inventory, that uh, differentiator? And so they got together and decided that they needed a level set. They needed an inventory process. Mm-hmm. They needed a means by which they could characterize what the core competencies of the firm were which was a, an interesting, in, in KM speak, sort of a taxonomy exercise. Mm. 
they didn't call it that at the time. Sure. It was more like. Well, I, I, I'm assuming you're saying that it's more than just what's on a CV or resume, right? These skills, abilities, these things of well, the. Actually, good that you ask it that way, because certainly at the outset, the, the metaphor that they had available to them was a resume, a CV, mm, a characterization, yeah. an inventory. Look back. 20, 30 years at how we used to c- categorize mm. the staff resources um, and early search algorithms for resume databases, that we, as we used to call them, you, we'd come up with buckets and these were the IT guys and these were the consultants in quotes and so on and so forth. We didn't call it taxonomy then, but what we were really trying to do is struggle with how do you get beneath that first paragraph of the resume to understand the more nuanced or more complex Mm. or more integrated knowledge. Mm. And we didn't have semantic search in the way we know it today. We didn't really have it at at scale, the ability to take a resume database or, you know, when you had HR intake, you didn't load the resume in a digitized format. You just loaded it in an image format. And that's if you had a really well-oiled organization. Mm. Most of them just stuck it in a file cabinet. And so it was sort of getting, moving the organization from a file cabinet metaphor to a completely indexed um, semantic framework. Well, and I, I, I suppose the challenge also would be to make it more relevant, right? So, so instead of going from the static, this is what it was at the point of input to how does a individual be able to facilitate change and uh, adaptation of skill sets to reflect the current? Exactly. And, and and there's two flavors to that even. One is we begin, even with even in this exercise that we're doing right now, and I look sort of retrospectively at how I got to now, I put different labels on it. I, I understand it from a different viewpoint. Now I have better terminology to understand mm. what we were actually trying to do. I'll insert the notions of semantic search and taxonomy. Back then, we were just trying to understand how to categorize or how to find things quicker. But as the tools evolved, as the technology evolved, the processes needed to be more adept, more integrated. And we needed to think about things in a more holistic fashion, contextualize information differently. All of those started to become possible because storage was much cheaper, tool sets available to every single business in the marketplace. This wasn't an exotic technology anymore. This was something that was really accessible to everybody. And that began to change the competitive landscape. Now, you know, smaller boutique firms had the ability to do this in a much more facile way. And the KPMGs of the world that were seen as sort of dinosaurs of this industry needed to be much more agile. It's it's a very organic process how this sort of all begins to come together. And, and yeah, but it's funny because you, you talk about having the vision, right? Because they had the vision, you had the vision at an early stage before the organizations or industries figured it out. So these jerks and leaps forward were probably very individualistic and leadership type, whoever was Absolutely. leading that charge at the moment. Uh, and it, How do you see that if you translated that from that industry model of your experience, what other what other organizational structures would benefit at this point from just say not not even knowledge management as the full blown architecture that's enterprise locked in and everybody knows it, even just 
to get to having that fidelity of expertise location? How would that show up in other industries or organizations? Good segue, whether you meant it to be or not. Um, <laughs> it actually, I actually took that very directly into a particular vertical market that I had been recruited into at KPMG, which was higher education research universities. And what are the enabling technology uh, consulting opportunities for a firm, a global firm like KPMG, to help research universities better compete in that in that marketplace of ideas? And so it, 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 was, it was an interesting permutation of that consulting uh, expertise locator problem. But, and this is a phrase that I've sort of cultivated and I keep characterizing it as though I made it up, but it's how do you take <laughs> knowledge management back to the knowledge factory? Say that again. How do you take knowledge management as a discipline? And at this point in time, when I started to think about it, KPMG had already formed the first center of excellence in knowledge management up in our Boston office acknowledged by broader industry including the likes of bill gates and others ah. that we that this was beginning to be an institutionalized discipline that had value internal to the organization as it positions itself to compete but also to its its clients so we started providing km as a service to our clients helping them to develop and understand how km can be a competitive differentiator for them I'm being exposed to clients as diverse as Caterpillar heavy equipment dealerships, not the manufacturing side, the dealers, because in their own way, they had come across this idea that they needed a better mechanism for knowledge provisioning, my term, not theirs, but the idea that they needed to be able to deploy people with just-in-time insight to service a World War II era bulldozer out in a road project in the middle of Indiana versus a high-end diesel in a yacht in the Mediterranean Uh and be able to decompose the problem set, identify the skills required, find the expertise across all Caterpillar mechanics in the world and and align them to the problem set. Uh And this guy came came to me with the problem in a very sort of rudimentary way. We started talking about, and actually he brought it up. It was um, the idea that Sears had tackled this, Sears and Roebuck. We, we may as well mention them because they won't be around much longer. They created a service model for just-in-time provisioning of all of the Sears appliance uh, repair people. So if you think about Sears, they have everything from you know refrigerators that have been working in the marketplace in the 1940s, to washing machines, dishwashers, just a huge array of product. Mm-hmm. And they then try to service other people's products. And mm-hmm. they have these vans, these Sears repair vans, mm-hmm. mobile deployed 24-7, seven days a week. And they've got guys in them. And they don't. They obviously don't have the repair manuals for every single thing Sears has ever sold. And Sears early on figured out how to digitize the underlying knowledge base using the KM terminology, the the repair manuals, and break problem sets down from the initial help desk call and running that all the way through the pipeline, that information pipeline, to a provisioning of both physical and sort of inside knowledge to the repair vehicle in the field. Do you know what time frame that was? Early 90s, I want to say. Now, when Sears started this, I don't really know. I've never... Bothered to research okay. the history of Sears' solution to this. 
somebody, if they haven't, if some business school or KM guy hasn't done a case study on, on how, and this is a classic case of Sears wasn't thinking of it as KM. They were thinking of it as logistics. How do I get the right mechanic to go to somebody's household and fix the appliance on the first visit? Because if they have to come back for two, it's costing Sears more money. And they're pissing off the mother who has a refrigerator that's not working and all our food's spoiling. Yeah. It's a very visceral kind of problem set. Sure. Now, it fits all the models that we have of yeah. you know how to integrate expertise locations and all this stuff. So anyway, I long story short, I, I flew the cat dealer up to our Boston Center of Excellence and started laying out what would this mean in the heavy equipment machinery business? Mm. How would you begin to classify all of the... And then the real challenge and where this really started to fall apart was their capacity to understand the expertise they have in the field. They have these old guys and really sort of capturing the underlying taxonomy that represented what does Jimmy know versus what is George, the 75-year-old guy that knows how to fix the dozer from World War II. And where are they at points in time? It became bigger than they realized they had the capacity to, to solve that problem. Based on both examples you've given, where do you see this fitting into, and I know you've done research specifically, uh, how do you see this fitting into government service or government organizations? Brilliantly, actually. KPMG allowed me, I, I worked for the National Practice Partner, and so I was touring around and sitting down with CFOs and CIOs of research universities all across the country, places in the in Seattle, you know, as far as Seattle to Boston, et cetera. And I would invariably find a way to sort of piggyback other ventures in there. I'd have a CIO that wanted to go look at an emerging technology and we'd make a side trip and go talk to these guys. When autonomy first came into the public space out of the black ops space as semantic search, that first iteration of publicly available semantic search, I took the executive VP from Howard University out to California, and we sat and talked with them and some other guys, some of the early leaders in collaboration, for example. One of the fascinating things that this exposed me to was an opportunity, and this goes straight back to government. I was dealing with the Small Business Administration, their constellation of small business development centers. Really interesting aspect. Everybody knows SBA principally for small business loans. Mm -hmm. Their second core mission is actually a, a technical education mission. They are um, empowered in all 50 states to provide small business development. What we would now, now we have meetup groups on your mobile phone that allow you to find places where you can go get technical assistance or insight, entrepreneurial startup. You know, venture capital has now, you know, worked all its way down to, you know, individual sort of working groups. But back then, that, none of that really existed yet. The small business development centers were built, they were all research university hosted. So every state, University of Texas, Austin was the center of excellence for small business in Texas. Howard University had DC and Maryland for a while. Now University of Maryland has has Maryland. Those SBDCs have a federal grant and depending on the size of the state, they have four or five, six small business experts on advising small businesses on the whole of information that a small business guy, whether he's thinking of, he's still building his business plan or he's trying to solve a problem or he's trying to expand. Mm -hmm. They're there as an advisory service. What they never figured out 
and and they started at a time when this this networking of knowledge and insight and expertise locator wasn't part of the government lexicon, if you will, except over in the DoD space, probably. So you walk into a small business development center and you 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 have this passionate interest in importing mangoes from West Africa and selling them to restaurants in New York City, and you think this is just a killer idea. And you walk into the SBDC to get some advice on how to do this. Well, that one simple construct requires insights into everything from USDA ag policy on mangoes versus West Africa versus this. There's a whole constellation of interesting nuances and technical insights that that guy's really actually asking this SBDC counselor, mm-hmm. this random guy that was assigned when they picked the number and yeah. walked in the place, <laughs> yeah, right. to have some insight into it. Nobody's ever walked into that SBDC wanting to import mangoes from West Africa before. But there's four guys in Houston, the SBDC, that have helped two companies be completely successful in a similar venture. The guy in New York City has no idea that the guys in Houston know how to do this. And there are centers of excellence like that all across the SBDC network. Of course there are. Mm-hmm. People on the West Coast have a lot of insight into importing from Southeast Asia, both from an economic trade standpoint, all kinds of nuances, cultural mm-hmm. You name it. I mean, it's a really broad base of information that they're trying to focus for this single individual, the single entrepreneur. And my idea for the SBA was to create a national learning infrastructure, nothing short of a national learning infrastructure pivoting off of a knowledge base mm-hmm. and an expertise location function that would begin to characterize what do all your SBDC counselors have a history of giving advice on, what do they have expertise on, what do right. they have insight on. What are the best practices in certain areas? And then, and this is where the organizational development piece of KM really comes into play, create a learning organizational culture within the SBDC framework that empowers them and incentivizes them to share this knowledge across the SBDCs. Mm. So that there's an advantage for the people in Houston, not an advantage, but an incentive. An incentive, yeah, right. Yeah. To partner with the guy in Manhattan right. to make themselves available to share that expertise mm-hmm. across a network. Where did that go? <laughs> well, it, it went Sounds like a fast. great idea. Holy it cow. was a great idea. Who wouldn't buy into um, that? That makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And <laughs> we were, it's interesting how um, timing and opportunity are, are such powerful influence. <laughs> We were in the middle of it. We were at the end of a Democratic administration with some very innovative people at SBA. Not that the Republican administrations aren't aren't, uh, mm-hmm. aren't completely innovative, but you were in the middle of a change in priorities. Let's let's yeah. let's characterize yeah. it on that. Yeah, yeah. And so nobody was willing to do anything that was as um, empowering and creative as all that. Now, this was also ten years ago. Mm. Today. Today, it would be a completely, it would be a very interesting exercise. A totally different environment, right? Now, all this is so much easier. And we have all of these sort of social media framework that reinforce, and in some cases have have subsumed some of this. Yeah, kind of circumvented some of the value they could have had. People just find in their own way, period. So the marketplace created sort of a natural framework. Mm-hmm. A need mm-hmm. was met mm-hmm. by the natural capacity of people through a communication channel that is these social media channels, meetup.com, LinkedIn, all of these have become much more robust mechanisms for sharing knowledge and discovering expertise. Yeah. 
what you may have thought was, you know, sort of unwieldy 10 years ago. Now there's a whole new set of opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So what's 10 years, what's 10 years from now then? With people, so if you look at the list of people in your podcast and all the various ways in which they're applying KM and KM concepts and enabling aspects of KM and the tools that have evolved around that semantic search, et cetera, it's this next generation of of young entrepreneurially minded KM adventurers mm. <laughs> that have a passion for eliminating the friction between getting something done and and connecting people. You know, go to Child Welfare Information Systems, another passion of mine. I built an information architecture for that back in the day. I won't even benchmark <laughs> that day. It was too long ago. But every time I pick up my iPhone today, I realize how very, very different that information architecture would have been with the power that we have, the geospatial and collaborative power that we have in our hands. I don't want to say we take for granted, but we just use as though it's... We do. We, it's ambiguous. It's I, ubiquitous, you know, I right? I mean, it, because I have my phone on me all the time, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Everything is centered on this. Yeah. Today, the, the opportunities are just huge. The yeah. creative application of more effective collaboration because everybody is sort of level set at the point they even enter the engagement. They, they enter the, the, the conversation. Well, the, the other interesting aspect of that is that with all of that innovation it has become not only more available, but cheaper. I mean, the solution set compared to 10 years ago, 15 years ago for an organization now, oh my good gravy. The idea of software as a service or, or uh, hardware as a service didn't exist. Interestingly, and, and I just, uh, Garfield, what's his first name? Uh, Stan. Stan. Stan Garfield. So I was very intrigued listening to Stan Garfield's podcast. It, it, and that was, if I'm not mistaken, that was actually benchmarked at like a year and a half ago. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. You, that, you really ought to update that one. As accessible as the technology has become and how it has enabled um, you know, software as a service, all these things are now, the building blocks are cheaper and more easily integrated. Yeah. And yet, I was just down at USCIS um, as a client. and Give me, uh, give me that acronym. To, give me that acronym. I'm sorry. United States uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services. Thank you. For the older guys, we think of that as the INS guys. Got it. Um, but now it's USCIS. They Huge workforce, very distributed, very interesting dynamic processes that are driven by policy shifts on a monthly basis, either mm-hmm. congressional or executive. Their need to be able to disseminate business processes and best practices and create communities of practice as easy as those terms are for me to throw out, their ability to implement things like that, despite the availability of technology, is still a big deal. And the inability of some of the management leadership, the leadership, if you will, within Mm -hmm. these organizations to understand the importance of perspective and context. So when you're looking at a taxonomy of terms, so I, I think I have a knowledge base, a, 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 an information policy framework that guides how you're supposed to do business. But as the policy drivers, the guys up at the central office, we think of it this way. But all the field guys, if you ask them, if you did a, uh, there's a terminology for this that's, that's not second nature to me, but if you did a usability test of your taxonomy that the, execu- that the central office created, it would not match very well with how the search terms 
that a guy in the field would use mm. to try to understand how to high degree of workforce turnover. Mm. I know I'm sort of rambling a bit on this, but one of the interesting problems that knowledge sharing and knowledge management frameworks can solve is this whole area of knowledge capture and knowledge sharing from a workforce perspective. So when you got, you know, a whole cadre of GS-15s and getting ready to sort of age out of the system, how do I get the GS-9s and GS-10s in the same environment to, to be able to take advantage, on the one hand, take advantage of that, that, that knowledge, that insight, without sort of impeding their own innovative impulses to find better ways to do it. Sure. But at the same time, not wasting a great deal of time and energy and therefore frustration in trying to recreate what three guys knew very well how to do mm -hmm. that are in the Indiana uh, or in the Baltimore office. And how do you create a knowledge sharing culture within a, a legacy organization that isn't used to doing that or that well, didn't have the mechanisms? And SharePoint, yeah. the technology platforms aren't the pure answer no, because there's no cultural organizational dynamic that incentivizes or more makes people feel that it's worth sharing, spending their time to cultivate other people. Well, Sorry, we, gonna... we've, we've covered a lot of topics and we have. as a matter of wrapping up this end of the podcast, and it sounds like we could probably break out and have three or four more to go uh, on specific topics later on. But today, can you tell me what your definition of knowledge management is? I think knowledge management, if, if we had to sort of put a, a definitional framework, a set of brackets around it, it's a set of opportunities uh, and disciplines that allow organizations and people to begin to create frameworks to share insights and mm. to amplify a single individual's capacities and efforts to impact and benefit a much larger group of people. It's, it's how we get to scale within an organization. And frankly, it's as applicable to an agency in a state government or city as it is to collection of social workers in a child welfare organization or what we might otherwise think of as a federal bureaucracy. And we think of it that way simply because we're so frustrated at how hard it is for them to be relevant. But yeah. knowledge management holds a lot of interesting um, enablers and opportunities to address some of those things that have historically been frustrating. That, put that I, in I think yeah. that's a bumper sticker right there. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's a little long. Yeah. A little long, a little but <laughs> it, it's, it's on the mark as far as I can see. And I want to thank you, John, for sharing your time and expertise today. I had a, I had a fun time. I enjoyed Great. it. Recorded live at the Cohen Multimedia Studio at Chautauqua Institution, Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer-ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.
and, and I think you would 